0: All right, turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. I've been playing with this chapter for the last two or three weeks, uh, but we're going to dive into this uh, completely and make our way through the entire chapter this morning. The title is Amazing Grace. So make your way to Genesis 22, but as you're on your way there, a couple of other verses for you to have in your mind. And beginning of Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's what Jesus did, beginning with the law with Moses and the law and the prophets. He expounded from the scriptures about him. What is the Old Testament all about? It is all about Jesus. Jesus said, "You know, lo, it is written of me in the volume of the book." Or on the Emmaus road, after he had risen from the dead, he was talking with his disciples in John five. Uh, no, 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 not John. Uh, That was Luke 24, 24, uh, 24, 27 was that. But then in John 5, 39, he said, You search the Scriptures for in them that you think you have eternal life, but these are testifying of me. So the Word of God is all about the Lord. As we get into the Old Testament, we've seen these glimpses of Jesus in the Old Testament Scriptures. The very first prophecy in Scripture is all about Jesus. He is the seed that would come, that would be the redemption of mankind. As we move into this chapter, though, what we find is a historical account that took place with Abraham and his son Isaac that prefigures what will happen between the father and the son on Golgotha, on Calvary's mountain, where he was crucified. And we know that this is foreshadowing because we'll see a reference in Hebrews that that helps us to make this connection. But I just want you to know that when you read the Old Testament, you should be reading looking to see Jesus, and how it's all looking forward to him. So in this chapter, we come to Abraham, who's once again going through a trial. He's gone through some, some severe testings over his life, right? He's in, a, in Ur of the Chaldeans. He is there with his um, family. He's worshiping a, a false god, a moon god by the name Sin. And a, the Lord calls him to depart from that idolatry, to depart from the land of his fathers, and go to a place that he would show him. And he pretty much does that, kind of has to make a few adjustments along the way, but he pretty, is, pretty much is obedient to that, and he takes a huge step of faith. He comes into the land. Lot is with him, his nephew. They have a conflict, and by faith they separate and they go in different directions, the Lord believing that he will be taken care of. Then Lot is living in a town that's going to be destroyed by God and he petitions the Lord and by faith he, he believes that God is going to take care of this situation and pre- uh, preserve the life of his nephew Lot. Um, and we see Hagar who gets pregnant um, and there becomes tension between Sarah, his wife, and Hagar, uh, his uh, mistress, her mistress, and they end up having to uh, send her away. She ends up coming back, so now he's got this test. And then later, Ishmael is born by her, and this creates a conflict. And Ishmael begins to persecute and attack and ridicule um, uh, little Isaac. And so they are sent away. What a trial that would have been. But now as we come into this chapter, we come to the trial of all trials. The Lord is going to test him, and he's going to ask him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, only son of promise. And he says, I want you to sacrifice him to me. Now, God's not going to have him do that in the end. But as the story's unfolding, Abraham doesn't know that. God doesn't call for human sacrifice. He, although he did offer up his own son as a sacrifice. But he's testing his heart that he could see his faith. But also, it becomes a foreshadowing of what the Lord does um, with his own son, Jesus, on this same location. And so we're going to take the time to work our way through the passage, but we begin at verses 1 and 2 with a test of faith. And we read, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And then he said, Take now your, your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So a few things here. First of all, the Hebrew word here does not mean to entice, to do wrong, but rather tests, a testing of another to see whether the other proves worthy. So it's looking at the content of his faith as not an incitement to evil. God does not tempt us to do evil. He calls us to walk in obedience, but he does sometimes lead us into trials and testings. Sometimes life just produces those. Uh, Satan ser- certainly will come and he will attack us and he will try to seduce us to get off into sin. But the Lord will never do that. In all of these trials, though, James tells us these are meant to produce strength and endurance in our faith. Endurance is an important thing in a race. And you're in a race. You're following the Lord Jesus Christ. You're, you're walking this walk, running this race of faith. And you need endurance. Endurance. Your faith is what needs endurance. And so God is working in your faith and in my faith and in our faith to produce endurance. And so this is what's going on. It's a test of his faith. And he calls him to make a burnt offering. Listen, this is not a metaphor that God is using right now, okay? We look back and we say, oh, look at the foreshadowing. But it was no foreshadowing as Abraham is walking it out. He just asked his son, or asked him to offer his son Isaac as a burnt offering. A burnt offering is one that would have been con- totally consumed in a fire. Reduced to ashes. That would have been the burnt offering that he's calling for. It's, it's severe. It's, it's a, the biggest trial he has ever faced. But I want you to notice a few words right at the beginning. Now it came to pass after these things? What things? All the things we talked about in the beginning. Being called out of the land of the Chaldeans. Trusting in the Lord for Lot. Trusting the Lord that he was going to have a child that would be given to him. His eyes were on the Lord. He was trusting and he was believing in him. All these things. These testings. After these things, then came this severe test in his life. Isn't it good to know that God does not throw us in the deep end of the pool when we haven't even gotten our water wings off yet? That's how I learned to swim on accident. I jumped into the pool and I forgot. I still remember it as a little boy. I'm like, I'm in the pool. I better swim. But, um, you know, (laughs) just that moment, I had family jumped in and helped. Yeah, you don't want to learn to swim that way, do you? You want to to practice. You want to build up to it. And I thank the Lord that he doesn't just throw us into a Genesis 22 kind of a moment when we're only ready for maybe a, a Genesis 12 type moment where we're being called. And so after these things, He is working on your faith. He's building your faith up. All of us will have a, the trial of all trials. And the good news is, you don't know what it is, and you don't know what, it's, what, what day it's coming, and that when it comes, the Lord is going to be there with you. We live this life, unless the rapture happens today, right, or very soon thereafter. We're all going to go through hard things. Many of you are going through hard things right Now, you are in the midst of that pain. You're in the midst of that sorrow. But I want you to know this. God has not given you something that you are not able to endure. He is going to be faithful. You have a history with God. You've got a story. You've got a testimony of God's faithfulness in your life. You have the gospel that says that Jesus came and he died on the cross for your sins and he rose the third day for your justification. And the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. you got a story with Jesus. You've seen him be faithful in your life in the past. He's going to be faithful to you again in this season. He is with you. And so we read, after these things, it took place. And it is an ultimate sacrifice that he's calling him to. And the Lord will allow difficult things to come into our life. But our faith must be in the Lord. Now we read here in verse 2 that he's going to go to the land of Moriah. What's the land of Moriah? Well, 2 Chronicles 3.1 tells us what the land of Moriah is. It says, now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the, uh, at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So the place is where the Temple Mount, this is the Temple Mount. This is the place where uh, Solomon builds his temple. This so many things happen in this place. Um, not only that, Golgotha is on the temple, actually, is on Mount Moriah. It's essentially Jerusalem, but this one little ridge in Jerusalem, and, and that's where all of this took place. I want to show you a picture. It's, um, you all have seen, and a couple of weeks ago we had this up as well. It was a picture of the Temple Mount, and there was that Dome of the Rock. It's that gold Muslim shrine. All of you have probably seen this. If not, you'll see it in just a moment. But this is inside the shrine, aerial view, looking straight down, if that helps to orient. And all all you're looking at is is rock there. You can't say with biblical certainty, but the tradition is that it was in this place that he was going to. And then he offers up Isaac. The Jews say uh, in their tradition that Isaac was bound and was ready to be offered up right here on that spot. On that uh, that bedrock, and that this is the place where the Ark of the Covenant later rested. Can't say with biblical certainty, but we're really, really close. And so these are some of the traditions that are that are around. Now the next uh, slide shows you that picture with the Dome of the Rock and the way Jerusalem basically looks today. So you got kind of the you got the trees there that's in the foreground, um, and that would be the Mount of Olives. It goes down into the Kidron Valley and then up onto Mount Moriah, um, where the Dome of the Rock is. But the next picture is um, same scene, but they've overlaid what the, it would have looked like when the Solomon's Temple would have been there. So you, you can maybe go back and forth between those, so they can get a little flavor of that. But this is the location. It's a pretty significant location he's going to. Now he has no idea all that's going to happen there. All he knows is that the Jebusites dwell in this location and that there's another key figure that lives here. Does anybody know who lives in this area right here? It was Melchizedek. Remember he met Melchizedek, the high priest of God in the city of Salem, Jerusalem. And this was a priest that worshipped the one true living God like Abraham did. And so right in this proximity is where... He would have been. So, this is the land of Moriah where he is going to. In verses three and four, we keep on reading in our text, and it says So, Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. Notice the ands, A and D, as we read this. Know, know, know how many there are. So, Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose, and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. He obeys with haste. He doesn't delay, right? He he has the dream, so he, he woke up, and then he gets the donkey, and he gets two servants, and he gets his son, and he gets a split wood, and he moves to the land of Moriah. The word repetition of and is not just kind of just what ended up happening. It's an intentional Hebrew grammatical form that is meant to communicate deliberate continual action. Deliberate conti- It's a structure in the Hebrew language, deliberate continual action. So we're not just reading um, here what he did, it's trying to communicate the attitude with which he did it. Does that make sense? He's not just kind of like, whatever, okay, get the donkey maybe today, maybe tomorrow. There's not that attitude. He's he's moving through with obedience and haste to get the task done. And I just want to pause right there and, and apply this to our lives and ask you, have you been walking obediently in haste to the things the Lord has put in front of you? The Lord is calling us all to a walk of faith. There will be specific things in all of our lives where we are to step out in this way or step out in that way and follow through and go to the end. And I'm just, I'm just want to ask, have you been faithful to walk down that road? Or have you maybe got to the place where you got up and you saddled the donkey, but now you've been on break for like months? You know, you haven't got the two young men, or maybe you did that now, but there's there's hesitancy in obeying what the Lord has called you to do. I mean, you know specifically you've met with the Lord. You've had the encounter with the Lord. You know what He's asking for from your life. There's His revealed Word of God and then there's those spoken directions that God gives us each specifically of how we're to walk out and live our life. And I, I, I pray that what you find and what's found in my life is deliberate, continual action Follow Jesus. You don't accidentally fall into the place of sanctification. Has anybody noticed that? I mean, it's deliberate. You've got to choose to get up and have the quiet time. You have to choose to pray. You have to choose to, to say no to your flesh. You have to choose these things. You've got to do them. And it doesn't accidentally happen. You don't think, man, I'm so tired of reading my Bible. I just can't stop reading my Bible. And being holy, I'm always doing nice things I don't even think about. That's not our life. We make deliberate, continual actions to obey Jesus Christ. And we're going to do that until we're in his presence. The ands are still going on in our life, right? At least the opportunity for them, and they should be there. And this, I mean, if you were to write kind of those places in your life, what would it be? And I put my faith and trust in the Lord. And then I shared my faith. And then I dealt with this sin in my life. And then I stepped out in obedience and did ministry here. And then I went through this trial and God was faithful and I trusted Him. What are the ands? I mean, if you were to write a string of the ands in your life, that deliberate continual action, what would it sound like? What would it sound like? It might be a great thing to do just to pass down to your kids. Just say, hey, let me let me tell you what God has done in my life, and tell the story. My kids loved this when we were, um, you know, they were little, and we were tucking them into bed. We would tell them stories. You know, we'd read the Bible and we would pray with them, and then we would. They always wanted to know stories from uh, Rebecca Mine's life, so we we would put them into um, a a form of like, almost like I don't want to say it's scripture because it wasn't scripture, but kind of like God has called this young man and this young woman. To go to um, Australia, but they had never been there before. And this is kind of our story. And then we got there, and but they didn't have money. They didn't know how they were going to be provided for. But the Lord's provision was there, and they had a little bit of money that would come in. But many times they would go out to the mailbox and they would find checks that was just enough to go and buy the groceries. And we would tell them, we tell them the story like that. That they get to sense and hear that God is still alive and working in in their parents' life and in, in the world today. You have that opportunity to walk that out. Walk it out. And, you know, so often you won't find out what the next and is until you have completed the first or the last and that's been laid out before you. He makes this journey, and he would have been coming from Beersheba, and it's about a 50-mile journey. And you can put the map up there. On the right-hand side is the Dead Sea. Uh, At the top of the map would be Moriah or Jerusalem, right? And then at the bottom of that line is Beersheba, about a 50-mile journey um, that he would have made. So it could have been done in in three days for sure. Now, some people say, well, this couldn't be Mount Moriah um, in Jerusalem because he could have traveled there faster um, than three days. Yeah, but he was 120 years old, right? I mean, you know, I'm just saying. And maybe it took a little bit longer. Um, who knows what happened? Maybe the donkey got a stone in its, you know, hoof and it had to get taken out. I, who knows what needed to happen? But this is the way he journeyed, and so people will say, he could have done it quicker, so therefore it's not this Mount Moriah. Yeah, but the Bible says it is, so forget you. Um, <laughs> I mean, really, this is what I read. I mean, if you could hear me read some of these commentaries, I'm like, oh, please. So, I mean, this is, this is the land that he's going to. Now, when he, when he gets there, this is something that he would have seen. I showed you the map of the, like, the, the Temple Mount. So if you put up this next uh, image, when he got there, this would have been an undeveloped area. That would be the, where the Jebusites are dwelling, the Canaanite village um, there in Jerusalem, where the, where the Jebusites are. That's where Melchizedek would have been. But moving up that ridge is where, eventually, uh, he would have gone to offer up his, his son Isaac. And, of course, in later time, it gets developed. A temple is built there. And um, it's, it's a pretty amazing place to be. And if you, if you end up going to Israel with this, Lord willing, we'll go up on that temple mount and we will, we will rehearse this whole story and walk through it together. Verse 5, resurrection faith. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. Who's coming back? We. There's the faith. What's going to happen? He, he must have believed that it was resurrection. That the resurrection is going to take place. It's like, well, how do you know that? I'm glad you asked because you need to write this reference down next to Genesis 22 in your Bible so you can find it next time you're there. Hebrews 11:17 through 19. This is what tells us also that this story is figurative of Jesus Christ. So Hebrews 11:17 says, "By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac." and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. That's a pretty familiar phrase, isn't it? Of whom it was said, and Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding, this is what Abraham concluded, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So we see that this becomes a figurative uh, you know, sense of like a resurrection, but the only begotten son also was considered dead, was dead for three days. How long was the journey from Beersheba to Moriah? How many days? Three days. And in the mind of Abraham, his son was as good as dead. And so for three days, Isaac was dead until on Mount Moriah, the Lord provided deliverance and this figurative resurrection that he had been, uh, was experienced. So Abraham has walked with the Lord 120 years old many different experiences and his faith is so strong right now he's like well this is the child of promise this is the seed that you said you would give me waited 100 years we think Isaac is about 20 right now you know we you know we waited for this we've made our mistakes along the way you said through him the nations would be blasted through him there'd be a innumerable host I don't know how this is going to happen I guess you're probably going to have to raise him from the dead if you want me to offer him up as a burnt offering. That's incredible faith. Think about this. This isn't, I I mean, anything. It's not like a lethal injection where he just dies and he's laying there on, you know, this rock. He's going to offer him up as a burnt offering. He's going to be reduced to ashes if he carries this out. And he's like, well, the Lord's going to have to raise him up. That's some pretty incredible faith that he has. And it reminds us of how Jesus rose from the dead. And we should be a people of faith. The same kind of faith is what the Lord wants us to have. Of course, he's never going to ask us to offer anybody up. But whatever that is that you're walking through, whatever that, those ands are in your life, have faith that God's going to see you through. That he's going to bring you to the end of it. In verses 6 and 7, and really even down into verse 8, we see that Isaac submits to his father. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He laid the wood on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Let me read verse eight as well. And Abraham said, "My son," said my son, "God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering." So the two of them went together. Isaac is in submission to his father. Again, so many of the um, artist renditions are of this, you know, young child, five, six, seven, eight years old, um, and it's not that he's twenty years old, and his hundred and twenty-year-old father says, "You're, you're." We'll see it. You're going to be the sacrifice. But Isaac is going to submit to this. He's carrying the wood. Does that remind you of anything? Can you think of anybody else that ever carried the wood? Yeah, Jesus carried the wood. And um, actually, I'm out of order here a little bit. But John 19, 17 says, And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is in Hebrew called Golgotha, Mount Moriah. And so he's carrying this. Isaac is going to this place where Jesus is going to be crucified, and he's carrying the wood for the sacrifice. Oh, by the way, the wood is another reason why they say this can't be Mount Moriah, because Mount Moriah in Abraham's day had trees. Therefore, he would not have brought wood. It would have been too long of a journey. And all I have to say is, does anybody like to really plan and make sure nothing gets done there's no way that it falls apart. You're like the ultimate planner, ultimate planners out there. You're like, yeah, I would have brought two loads of wood. I mean, I would have made sure. But here, they'll say because there were trees up there, he would not have carried the wood the whole way, so it couldn't have been that location. But how about this? Isn't an idea. He takes the fire. He takes the knife. He takes the wood. He takes his son. What is that? Everything needed to be obedient. I believe that's what's being communicated here rather than some you know, issue with you know, trees or no trees. It is that location that he is traveling to. And we see Isaac submitting to his father. And this is an example of Jesus' submission to the father when he is going to be offered up. Matthew 26, 39 says he went a little farther. He's in the garden of praying there and fell on his face and prayed saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He's in total submission to the father. Or in verse 42, a second time he went away and prayed, Oh, my father, if this cup, the cross is the cup, cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. He was in complete submission. Isaac's submission to his father prefigures Jesus' submission to his father. But both are examples for us of how we should be what? In submission to our heavenly father. We are to be in submission to him. We have every reason to trust him and to believe him. He will only do good. This is so clear. The lesson for us is to implicitly trust the Lord. Yeah, but I don't understand. That's why it's called faith. But as you walk with the Lord, that which is faith today will be a fact tomorrow in your life. I mean, we in faith wait for the promise of heaven. But when we're in heaven, that's no longer going to be faith. That's going to be fact. I am now in heaven. And this is the way it is in our life. There are many areas where you maybe have stepped out in faith, trusting the Lord. And now you can look back and say, "That's not I mean, it's not faith anymore because I have realized it It has come to pass. So I'm not believing and trusting for it to come. It's come. And when you walk with the Lord, that's what happens. That which is faith today will become a reality in your life later and you will now have this history that says, I can trust the Lord. But what I'm afraid happens with us too often is that we begin to negotiate with God. He says... Offer your son. And and we're like, i got a lot of servants. Maybe we could do a servant. My only son whom I love, why does it have to be him? Why can't I take one of my servants? I've got a lot of lambs. I've got a lot of goats. Why not one of them? And we begin to negotiate with God and what he's calling us to do. He is God Almighty. He's God Omnipotent. He's infinite. We're finite. He knows the end. We don't even know the next 20 seconds. Maybe we just need to stand back and trust him. Has the Lord not proven himself to be kind and generous to you? He sent his only son to die on the cross. He poured out his wrath on his son because of the wrong things you have done so that you won't have to go through that punishment, so I won't have to. And he raised his son from the dead so you could go to heaven. What's the problem with trusting a God like that? There is no problem. So sometimes we try to negotiate out of what God is calling us to do. And sometimes we think we're more righteous than God. And we think that we're more compassionate than God. And this is something I think is so prevalent in the church right now. As people thinking they're more compassionate and more kind than Jesus And so they go through the Bible and they find where the Bible talks about sin or they find where the Bible talks about the judgment uh, for sinners who do not repent in hell. And they're like, oh, God can never do that. I can never do that. So therefore God can never do that. So I'm more compassionate with God. No, this is just a wrong example of who God is. God's more like me rather than what the Bible says. And that's arrogance and it's pride. Assuming that you have even one shred of compassion more than a God who would send his son to die on the cross. You don't have the whole picture. I don't have the whole picture. Maybe it's just best if we stand back and fall on our face and say, you are worthy, Lord. I trust you. I believe you. I will wake and I will saddle the donkey and I will get the wood and I will get the fire and I will get the servants and I will get my son and we will travel. And I've got it all here. Everything I need to obey you, Lord. I'm not leaving anything to chance. This is what our response to the Lord should be like. There are things in the Bible that you may not understand, but you do know that God loves you. And you do know that he's merciful and that he's kind. If you have it in your mind that you are more compassionate and kind than the Lord, let me tell you something. You have way too high of a view of yourself and you need to re-meet your maker. Because he is full of loving kindness. We don't don't even get close in our best day to one second of God's loving kindness. And so you may not understand, but you know what? The Lord didn't say we have to understand everything. He said that we needed to believe and trust him in all things. So trust in him. We keep on reading here. In verse 8, it says, And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. That's, that's kind of like dodging the question a little bit, isn't it? Uh, where's the sacrifice? You, oh, you are. Didn't I tell you that? I mean, he's going to find that out. But right now, he's like, Son, I, I don't know. But God's going to, it's going to be all right. He's thinking, maybe he's going to raise you from the dead. He's thinking, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen. But. God is going to provide himself. Think about John the Baptist, thousands of years later, looking at Jesus when he came to begin his ministry. He says in John 1.29, the next day John was, uh, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's your provision. God will provide for himself the Lamb, and that Lamb will. Ended up being his son, Jesus Christ, and he came to be the one that would be uh, would atone for sins. Verses nine through twelve, we see the deliverance of Isaac. Then they came to the place of which God had told them. Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. So clearly, the twenty year old gets it now, right? And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad nor, or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. His obedience was an act of fearing and revering God. And he walked in obedience. You know, if we walk in obedience, it is a sign that we fear God. When we walk in disobedience and we walk in sin, it is an indicator that I do not fear God. But he says, I know that you fear me. And you withhold nothing. And so don't touch your son. Verses 13 and 14. We are introduced to this familiar name of God, Jehovah Jireh. How many of you ever heard that that name for God before? Jehovah Jireh. I would would imagine that a lot of you have heard that name. Maybe you've sung the song, but you never knew the context of where it came from. It comes from here, which makes it all the more meaningful and all the more powerful. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place... Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, and the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Was it provided in the mount of the Lord? Well, in that hour it was. It was a ram. But it was all foreshadowing and prefiguring what would happen when God the Father would provide Himself, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, as that sacrifice to atone for sins. When we say Jehovah Jireh, we're speaking of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. A lot of times we only think, well, yeah, Jehovah Jireh, I need some money. Well, okay, God can provide anything, but Jehovah Jireh, I've got a Savior. It's Jehovah Jireh, I've got a Lamb that was sacrificed for me. It's the Lamb of God. This is the first of seven different compound names of God In the Old Testament, you might want to do a little search on your own and see if you can find them up. They're pretty easy to find if you do a search. But God is providing salvation. And Jesus died in this place on Mount Moriah. We celebrated Good Friday last week where he died in that spot for us. Provision for salvation. That's what the Lord was doing here. I don't know if you put your faith and trust in the Lord, but if you haven't, you need to. You need to have your sins forgiven. Jesus was sacrificed for my sin. It was laid upon his body. And then the Father judged his son on Mount Moriah, the son, Jesus Christ, and he died for my sin. But three days later, he rose from the dead, offering eternal life for all who would put faith and trust in him. If you've not done that yet, You need to take advantage of the provision that's been offered to you. How beautiful. And you may say, well, I don't know a lot about God. Okay, you may not, but you know this. He loves you enough that he would send his son to die for you. That's a pretty good start. That's a good enough start to say, I want to enter into a relationship with him. I want to follow him. We uh, Look at verses 15 through 19. It's a renewal of the Abrahamic covenant. We've read this a couple of times um, already. But of course, if his son was going to die, what was going to happen to the covenant? And so in this tense moment, the Lord takes the opportunity to renew the covenant. He says, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies in your seed Jesus all right in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed you can you can hardly can go anywhere on planet earth where there's not somebody who's been blessed through salvation by faith in the seed Jesus this is the descendant that he's referring to verse 19 so Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. So he renews this covenant. It's the radical test the Lord made. He said, let me just tell you what I'm going to do for you. What I've promised is still going to take place. 20 through 24, I'll leave it for you to read on your own. As a a brief update on the lineage of Nahor's family, what is most notable is found there in verse 23, that Bethuel begot Rebekah, who is going to become uh, a, a key player in verse 20, uh, chapter 24. we'll read and talk to her more about her more in, in that chapter. But as we wrap it up here, I ho- we call this amazing grace. I hope you are amazed at the unity of Scripture, the, w- the way it fits together, foreshadowing, events taking place thousands of years ahead of time, and then being fulfilled with such um, detail, such beauty. I pray that you're amazed by God's grace, that he would send his son. I mean, listen, this story is meant to disturb us as we read it. It's meant to unsettle us. He can't sacrifice his son. That's a terrible thing. That should never happen. Oh, he's not going to happen. Okay, well, that's good. Oh, wait a minute. The father did do that with his son. And we should have this sense of being disturbed. But even more than that, we should be disturbed because he was offered up, not for himself, but for who? Raise your hand. Us. There should be an amazement that God loves me that much. We should be amazed at Christ's submission and say, I want to obey. I want to follow that example of being obedient. And we should be amazed at Jehovah Jireh, that there really is a provision for us, for our salvation. But you can't find that provision anywhere else. It's only in Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would speak to our hearts at this moment. If there are things that need to change, Lord, help us to walk them out in obedience. Lord, if we need to come to salvation, I pray you would draw people to yourself.